Sandy Burnett is one of the most authoritative classical music broadcasters in the UK. He was presenter with Radio 3 at the BBC between 1994 and 2007 and has a close relationship with the Academy of Ancient Music, having been the orchestra's Hogwood Fellow for the 2018-19 season. His achievements in and with music are many and varied. He's the author of The Idler Guide to Classical Music and The Idler Guide to Jazz. And he's an outdoor swimmer. His interest in outdoor swimming came more recently and has quickly grown into a passion. In this podcast, we're going to talk about swimming, music, music and swimming. Sandy Burnett, welcome to Swimming Pod. Stanley, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. You see yourself as a social swimmer. How did you get into swimming? Well, I just like the outdoors. I'm very much an urban animal and I live in West London uh, with all the advantages and disadvantages that that brings. But every time I, we've been to the seaside or, or a lake or something, I've just always wanted to uh, jump in and just and splash around. Uh, so that really led me to taking outdoor swimming a little bit more seriously about three years ago. What do you get out of outdoor swimming? I get a lovely communication with nature. I get an escape from the rest of my life, which, by the way, I still very much enjoy. So I don't really need to escape from it. And I get a lot of camaraderie. I get to meet uh, lots of very interesting and relaxed people who tend to wear their excellence in their different fields very lightly, certainly when they're wearing swimming trunks. So are you a heads up or a heads down kind of guy? A bit of both. Definitely. I'm certainly not a, a serious thundering up and down the swimming lanes type person. No. Although, in fact, I am actually quite, am actually quite short-sighted. I do wear swimming goggles, which are prescription goggles, and they do work really pretty well. But I don't see 100% perfectly in them. So I, I don't look around at uh, ducks and geese uh, quite as much as other people do when they're wild swimming. The thing about goggles, I don't use goggles and I'm short-sighted. And sometimes if I'm swimming outdoors, I kind of imagine I'm in my own personal Monet, this very blurry thing of trees around the edge and so on. And I don't mind a bit of blurry vision. I don't go into the water particularly to have a look at what's going on. Uh, I just like being enveloped by a completely different physical sensation. It's very sensual, wouldn't you say, Stanley? Oh, absolutely. It's very much the sensorial, it's a complete experience for me. It must be for you as well. Well, yes. And also, well, you know, I'm a musician. So in a way, musicians are quite conscious of their bodies, I think, and how bodies are used. And certainly as a string player, we use our arms, actually legs and torsos and head balance is all quite important when you're playing the double bass. So that comes into the fore with swimming, doesn't it? I mean, the angle of the head affects the way you make contact in the water, doesn't it? So there are certain parallels there in terms of approaching an instrument and approaching the water, I would say. And I know you're a double bass player, and it must be even more so for you. You must be engaged with your whole body in, in, in both respects, in swimming and in, in playing the double bass. Well, that's right. Although, in fact, I was originally a violinist when I was growing up, and that, and that was absolutely fantastic. Uh, obviously, the other end of the string family, you might say. But uh, the principles of string playing are the same. In fact, I would like to live in a world where, where all string players could play violin, viola, cello and double bass and back again. Um, because they're not as incompatible as you might think. Can you tell me what your favourite swim memory is? I think the kind of swimming that means most to me actually is winter swimming, something which sadly I'm denied at the moment because I'm a member of uh, the Serpentine Swimming Club here in London, and uh, clearly it's off limits uh, just at the moment. I started swimming in the Serpentine in the summer, three summers ago, or maybe four, 
Uh, and that was absolutely marvellous. I think the first time I turned up, it was one of those blazing hot July days and uh, it just seemed like we were in paradise. However, as the weather changes and the temperature gets colder in and out of the water, in December and January and February, there really is something completely magical about swimming in those conditions. It's It really is extraordinary. I mean, it's quite dangerous, of course. And it pushes your body really to the limit. So the people that persist through the winter really have something special about them. And it's a privilege, actually, to, to be of their number, I'd say. We've already started talking about your music life. Now, you say you're unusual for your generation in being amphibious in the worlds of both classical music and of jazz. Um, how different is the mindset in either format? Well, of course, this is incredibly interesting. I mean, for my generation, I mean, I'm in my mid-50s now. People who are a generation younger than me often, I mean, jazz musicians and improvising musicians now go to music college in the way that they were, weren't able to a generation ago. So, of course, this is a fantastic development because what this means, actually, is the mental skills of improvisation and the creative skills of improvisation are being recognised by academic establishments. And, of course, that's fantastic. Uh, rather than just, uh, I mean, listen, classical system is great too. But something that improvising jazz musicians have is they're able to think outside the box and actually they're composing on the spot as they play or indeed uh, vocally improvise. So when I say I was, I'm unusual for my generation, that's because back in the 70s and 80s when I was starting out, I grew up in the classical system, not at a specialist music school or anything like that. And on the side, I played jazz and played in a rock band, but that was a an, an very much an alternative existence, uh, which I taught myself by listening to the radio and forming terrible school rock bands and just getting on with it. So I'm lucky to have developed as a musician in two parallel tracks, I'd say. I mean, clearly they fed off each other, but they were two very different worlds at the time. I think jazz and, well, certainly jazz in the 70s and 80s and before that was really an act of rebellion against the you know the the establishment whereas now i think that jazz and improvised music as i say is is embraced by the by the whole musical world and get got great respect and that's the way it should be i think now you run something called listening club it's a project that opens up the world of classical music to the general arts loving person or people can you say something about well yes Stanley. i mean listen since last march and i'm now talking to you in the middle of january 2021 I was thinking yesterday, I have had three gigs outside the house for which I've had to get dressed and <laughs> go out to work. Everything else has been done from this studio here or within my house, like composing music, recording music, or indeed delivering music lectures. So Listening Club came to me because I think there's a real appetite to people who are stuck at home at the moment, as most of us are, as we all are, to learn things. And now we have at least got time to get to grips with things that we've always wanted to find out about. And I find that nobody was really making the effort to talk about classical music to the general audience. I think if we have a failing as musicians, we tend to talk to ourselves. And I, I really wanted to try to open out the world of classical music to people who were really interested in literature, for example, or history, or fine art. I mean, the fine art uh, online course world is very heavily, um, um, you know, uh, supported or provided for. So, yeah, so that, that was the point. So what Listening Club is, it's a, it's a series of six-week courses over Zoom that people can either join me live with a group of, well, it's about 40 or 50 at the moment, or catch up later online. And the course I'm currently running, I'm two sessions into a six-week course of, 
Uh, it's called Core Classical. And what we're looking at is the, the really the key area of the classical era of classical music which I accept is rather confusing, but that's the terminology we're given, which is Haydn, Mozart, early Beethoven. And we're talking that 1770 to 1800 really centered around Vienna. So actually today I've got the score of Mozart's Wind Serenade Kirchhoff 375 in E-flat, which is, a if you're listening to this podcast at home, search out a recording. It's fantastic feel-good music. So I'll be exploring that in my next Listening Club episode. You're very keen on the idea of improvisation and a free approach to creativity. Does swimming help in the creative process for you? Well, I think it probably does, but actually I don't put on my swimming trunks <laughs> seeking to bring the two worlds together. I just, I escape into a different world when I'm swimming, but it probably does feed back into itself. It makes me feel better about myself swimming and it probably sharpens up my mind. But, and certainly when I was swimming along a bit, indeed, when I go running by the Thames, which is something else I do in West London, which I can still do. Of course, my mind is able to freewheel and uh, think about what it wants. I just wonder if there's something about the freeing up of the body and the agility that comes with, with swimming that might help in the physicality of playing the double bass, for example. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think, thinking back to your last question, I mean, swimming affords me mental mental breathing space, really. But in terms of uh, freeing up the body, I mean, yes, I mean, here we're really talking about, I mean, you don't want to hear about my aches and pains, Stanley. But really, to play the double bass, you need to have good posture. And clearly, we have, we have kind of tensions in our bodies, which uh, we shouldn't carry around with us. We really shouldn't, because otherwise it could be quite crippling. And playing the instrument for hours at a time, you really want to get rid of those physical problems. So swimming, of course, helps with that, because what I find is it really improves my core stability, which uh, is something which I'm not that naturally strong in. I don't have a very strong core, but it's important to have that. So swimming definitely helps. It recalibrates my body in a way which I think is very, very helpful. Can you improvise something now on the double bass? Maybe Wagner, something in relation to the Rhine? Oh, yes, the Rhine, the Rhine. I must just say that last summer, or maybe it was the summer before now, because I, I, another thing I do, Stan, is I take cultural holidays, cultural tours to music festivals, actually either, either classical music or jazz, through my very good friends at Ace Cultural Tours. And one of them was a ring cycle trip at the, at the Leipzig Oper, which is absolutely first class. And so I really want to get back to that. But clearly we can't. But you and I were chatting earlier, weren't we, about, uh, about Wagner and the fantastic opening of Rheingold, which opens with a long, a very long, four minute long, I think, E flat chord, starting at the depths of the Rhine, so to speak, with a long sustained double bass uh, growl. And the horns start vaulting from the depths, eight of them spiraling, and then the orchestra gradually wakes up the water starts flowing. It's a fantastic evocation of water. I mean, I, isn't it? Don't you think that's one of the best evocations of water in the whole world of classical music? So maybe we could use that as a starting point. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I must say, when I hear those opening bars, I just, my spine is tingling. I'm kind of in it in a very kind of physical, not just mental way. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go and grab my bass then, and I'll, I'll reflect on that note for about a minute. Thank you. 
Voilà. Applause, applause. Um, there's something very deeply satisfying about that. Really well, thanks. That. It's it's nice to be able to play and improvise, actually, even just for fun. Again, one of the fantastic things about the classical world, and, you know, much as I revere Wagner, actually, and uh, many other classical composers and their works, when we as classical musicians get onto the platform, the, the pressure is to get everything right and uh, really pay our respects to the composer and do justice to the masterwork that we're playing, or even the second-rate work that we're playing. When I'm on the bandstand, Ronnie Scott's or the Vortex or the 100 Club or any of these uh, sort of venues, or indeed playing in front of a microphone like this, it's fine to take a risk. It's more fine to take a risk and not be worried about how it turns out. And I would say that's the, probably the difference between the two worlds. Uh, there's an obsession with accuracy in classical music, which I think is justified. In jazz, there is much more of a focus on creativity. And it's fine to go down dead ends and then <clears throat> reverse out of them again. Uh, and I don't think listeners mind that either. So that's the strength of uh, improvised music, I would say. You can just have a go without worrying too much about the consequences. I mean, listen, I could be a better improviser. We could all be better. Uh, but it, it, it's fine to take risks, and that's good, I think. Talking about taking risks, Wagner and the Rhine, I did swim in the Rhine in Bonn when I was, I was there for a German research council meeting. It was really very powerful. And I imagine probably quite fancifully that Wagner must have swam in the Rhine at least once to be able to turn that sense of a living water into music. I'm sure you're right about Wagner. I mean, the Rhine is a massive um, presence in, in German art, German poetry, German music. I mean, the Rhine connection that I'm thinking of when you mention that is Heinrich Heine and the poems of his from the 1820s that were set to music by Robert Schumann in the 1840. And it portrays the Rhine as a potentially malevolent place where people can drown. You go there, in fact, to drown your sorrows, to drown your worries and perhaps drown yourself. And uh, I mean, of course, there's the myth of the of the Lorelei as well, isn't there? That uh, malevolent uh, spirit that draws uh, unsuspecting men to their doom. And Robert Schumann himself tried to commit suicide by throwing himself into the Rhine. So as we know, uh, rivers can be dangerous places. None more so than at present. You know, in the Thames, when we did, we swam the Thames a number of years ago. We, you know, developed a little culture of our own, and one of them was swimming butterfly, swimming fly under every bridge, just so not to disturb the spirits of the Thames. The awareness of, of the risk and danger of this the UK Great River, the English Great River, um, is, is always there. And of course, the Rhine is a much bigger river, much grander, much more powerful, much more to be feared as well as respected. Do you swim all the strokes, Stanley? I mean, we've been swimming together in the Thames, but um, I don't think I've actually got as far as finding out. Do you swim crawl and butterfly and breaststroke and all that? Crawl and breaststroke. Butterfly, for me, is the most perfect way to drown in water. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm leaving butterfly to others, I must say. I'm mastering the breaststroke. If I can do the breaststroke well, that's fine. You see, I'm a swimmer of disappointingly limited ambition, Stanley. No, no, you and Byron. Byron was a breaststroker and he was powerful and, and swam long and strong. So I'd be perfectly happy and proud to be a breaststroke swimmer. And how do you feel about sea swimming versus river and lake swimming? 
Well, that takes me to another place that's dangerous. I've always found it wonderful, which is Oldborough, Suffolk. The link with music is, is pretty pretty obvious in many ways. Benjamin Britten and, uh, and his great opera. And, of course, the theme of drowning again. I, I swam up the coast from there at Walberswick. And that has a fierce pull, and Oldborough must be the same. So any thoughts about Benjamin Britten, Oldborough? Oh, lots of thoughts. In fact, this winter I should have been there on a creative retreat that was awarded to me by the Red House, and I did one last, uh, the previous November, uh, 2019. And I went swimming most days then in November. So, you know, obviously water temperature not as cold as it would have been in, in a lake at that time. But you're right, it's quite a, you've got to take care. And there was certainly one occasion I went in, of course, I went in on my own. And I, afterwards, I thought, you know, I, I think I probably shouldn't have gone in. It is a bit treacherous, not the best place. But if you want to understand Britain and Piers, you know, relationship with uh, Alborough and their creative work, I, I do think you have to go swimming over the, and, you know, tiptoe over the shingle beach and past the oily fishing boats and get into the water because it's all there in the music. I mean, the 4C interludes from Peter Grimes, that's the obvious piece of music relating to that. so many other composers well i mean listen I, I love lots of composers but if i had to use one which of course i don't it would be bach he his music is completely shot through with spirituality all of his music is there in the service of a of the divine being that he saw he said he was a committed lutheran and the great thing about the lutheran religion is and was that all of musical excellence could be put to service in conveying the christian message rather than the Actually, the Presbyterian tradition I was I grew up with, where music had to be very restrained and modest and not rock the boat too much. The Lutherans didn't care for that at all, or most of them. And Orthodox Lutheranism, they said, that's fine. Just, you know, bring in your trumpets and drums. Bring in your musical ornamentation, because this is all, it's all, um, it's all God's work. So as a result, of course, we have this fantastic corpus of religious music by Bach, including the 200-odd surviving cantatas, all of which I've performed or masterminded in a local project here. Uh, in West London. But you also have the instrumental music, you know, the solo violin, uh, sonatas and partitas, the cello suites, the 48 Perlis and Fugues, the Brandenburg concertos, orchestral suites. And after those work, works, Bach writes, Soli Deo Gloria at the end, for the glory of God. So, you know, there's, um, there's meaning behind the music. There's meaning within the music, whether they're religious words which are being sung to it, uh, or not. And then you have the musical craft. I mean, I mentioned the 48 Preludes and Fugues. A prelude is just a reflective piece that often just develops a musical pattern. A fugue has a more targeted uh, project about it, you might say. It takes one, it starts off with one line, which is then imitated by a second line, a third line, sometimes a fourth and fifth line. So it's very much to do with imitation and what we call counterpoint, one line against another line. But the 48 Preludes and Fugues approach ways of doing that in 48 different ways. Bach was relentlessly inquisitive, and he was actually like a scientist. 
or an inventor or a craftsman. And he had notes and he moved them around. And uh, he was never, he, he never settled for second best and he never settled for an ordinary repeat or something when it could be elaborated and uh, explored further. So those are some of the things that I find incredibly interesting about Bach. And of course, the music sounds so great. Uh, that's why we still um, draw such value from Bach's music today. Seems endlessly fascinating. Can I ask you, if somebody came to you saying they love both music and the water, we've already mentioned a number of composers, but others you might recommend to them. If we're talking about music and the sea, I've mentioned the, the four sea interludes from Peter Grimes, which are basically scene change music, but just collected and performed on their own, rather than being in the context of Britain's 1945 opera, Peter Grimes. But sea music in its own right, there are two works that I would really would recommend. One is a wonderful work by, by Grace Williams, Welsh composer from 1944, called Sea Sketches. If you listen to the second movement, I think it is called Sailing Song, you'll get a really lovely sound world of mid 20th century British, a little bit like Vaughan Williams. Uh, in fact, Vaughan Williams was Grace Williams's teacher at the Royal College of Music, but also a little bit bleak as well, a little bit like Shostakovich, maybe a little bit like Britain. So seek out Sea Sketches by Grace Williams. And the other obvious aquatic work to mention is a work which was actually completed at the Grand Hotel in Eastbourne, earlier as the 20th century, and that is La Mer by Claude Debussy. And this is a really interesting work which draws on, you can tell from the titles of the movement, what he's trying to evoke in the music from dawn to midday in the sea and so on, Game of the Waves. And yet, in another way, it's a completely abstract piece. It's a little bit like a kind of cubist approach to something. Maybe it's not really about the sea at all. It's a sort of, it's an abstract piece that just uses those titles as a starting point. So we have to be careful in La Mer about treating it as a very literal work. But listen, I mean, the main thing is it just sounds absolutely fantastic. Debussy is what they call a French impressionist. Uh, he had that label at the time, even. He used what Debussy and Ravel, what they were trying to do is rebel against Wagner and Brahms and Richard Strauss and Gustav Mahler and that big, rich, uh, Teutonic, late 19th century sound and create something completely new that was all about impressions, swiftly scudding clouds across the sky, that kind of thing, rather than perfectly formed German dumplings, which I'm also very fond of, by the way. never heard the, the German composers being called dumplings, but uh, I'm sure they would not be offended. Well, I can say that because honestly, I think German music is the very best German music and Austrian music, but there's a lot in, in the classical realm. But listen, there's so much to explore. There's so much to, so much I don't know yet, but uh, but we'll come across in as I, as I keep discovering new music. So that's classical music, jazz, pop music, funk, uh, disco. I've got quite wide taste. I don't like everything. Yeah, I like listening across boundaries. I'm sure we all do. I bet you do, Stanley. Oh, I certainly do. It's really difficult. Again, as I've been swimming, of course, my 65 swims are 65. Songs would, would well up as I swam, as I went to a swim. And, and there were things that just emerged and really quite weird sometimes, from Thomas Tallis to um, Deep Purple and David Bowie, with uh, um, digressions via ABBA from time to time, which kind of disturbs me a little bit. But yeah, music's certainly there. I feel it's so much part of my life as it is you know, central to your life, Sandy. It's central to my life. It's also my job. I've got no regrets about that, but it, doesn't, it does definitely change your relationship to music 
when it's the main thing that you do. Yeah, but congratulations on your 65 swims at 65. That's an amazing achievement. Thank you so much. And, and, and you, Sandy, have achieved so much. And I'm really pleased that you were happy to take part in SwimmingPod. Sandy Burnett, thank you so much. Thank you, Stanley. All very best wishes to you. I start with the note that begins Wagner's ring cycle.